0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's Brightest Minds in Emergency Medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Welcome to Part 2 of Episode 19 on Pediatric Abdominal Pain. We have with us Dr. Anna Jarvis, who was an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto from 1997 to 2010. She's a full professor at the University of Toronto and the Associate Dean of the Office of Health Profession Student Affairs. She also created, implemented, and supervised the Department of Pediatrics Clinical Fellowship Program in Pediatric Emergency Medicine for the last 13 years. Dr. Stephen Friedman is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He completed his Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago and a Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation at Northwestern University. He's a clinician investigator in the Division of Emergency Medicine at U of T and an Associate Scientist in Child Health Evaluative Sciences. In this second part of our program on pediatric abdominal pain, we're going to go on to case number two. And here it is. Our second case is that of a seven-year-old boy who presents to the ED at 9pm with a history of diarrhea and fever for two days, as well as vague abdominal pain. On further questioning, he has no travel history, his immunizations are up to date, there's no viral contacts, and he's otherwise healthy on no medications. He vomited once that morning and has no urinary symptoms, no URI symptoms, or rash. On exam, his vital signs are normal, except for a temp of 38.1. His abdomen is soft with slight diffuse tenderness and no peritoneal signs. The rest of his exam is normal. A urine dip is normal. A stool for CNS is sent off and the boy is rehydrated with Pedialyte in the ED and a diagnosis of gastroenteritis is made. Sound familiar? Well, this is the exact same case that we talked about for appendicitis, which drives home the point again that you need to be on the lookout for more serious causes of belly pain in patients who present like a gastroenteritis. So let's get into the pearls when it comes to gastroenteritis in kids. This is something that we see again and again and again and again. And I think it's important to bring up the nuances in such a common diagnosis. Dr. Jarvis in general, what do you look for in the history to help you rule in the diagnosis of gastro?
1: I'm so glad you phrased the question in what do I look to rule it in, because gastroenteritis is really a diagnosis of excluding everything else, right? So to rule it in, I am looking for a history of contact. Not that you can't have appendicitis in the middle of a big gastro outbreak, but if lots of kids on the soccer team who were away for a tournament on the weekend came down with gastroenteritis, I would be very careful to check for specific organism, find out where they were. Is there an outbreak of something? Should I be doing some testing? Because if it is a nursery school child or a daycare child, and everyone in the daycare is having diarrhea. I almost never do stool testing. Right? So I want to know when everything about it. When did it start? How has it progressed? Changes in diet. And the child may not have traveled, but people often don't tell you that they were at grandpa's cottage on the weekend and he's on well water. This type of thing does... Grandpa have a farm and was a kid milking the cows and drinking on pasteurized milk. We've had all kinds of things come out and the parent may not even know what the child was exposed to. So those are the questions I look for. I'm looking, is there some specific food-related, water-related problem? In Toronto, I also ask, Does mom or dad travel? Or if you have two moms or two dads, does anyone travel? Any other relatives or friends visited from the home country? We've had imported typhoid and other things where folk have brought back food from the original country of origin of the parents. All these things are important. Again, sorry folks, but kids take time. you got to deal with the history so that's specifically this episode i then need to ask the question has this child ever had this before what's the usual bowel habit sometimes you uncover that this child's been having niggling diarrhea for months that child needs to be referred for a workup you may not have to do it in emergency if he's not toxic but you've got to keep your mind open that this is something presenting the tip of the iceberg, a chronic disease. It's very important exposure to animals, new foods, different water, people who have traveled, and then the past history.
0: Dr. Friedman, anything to add in terms of pearls of ruling in the diagnosis of gastroenteritis?
1: I would concur
0: with
2: uh, Dr. Jarvis. It's really more first rule out bad things. You know, it's clearly more challenging to us when it's isolated vomiting. I think vomiting plus diarrhea, much more likely to be gastroenteritis. Children with isolated vomiting is always a red flag. And that's why I, my pearl would be don't call isolated vomiting gastroenteritis. You can, I mean, I'll often call it on my discharge diagnosis vomiting. I may call it viral illness, but but I'm very careful not calling it gastroenteritis because vomiting in isolation to me I go through several thought processes. One is intracranial. That could be mass, could be meningitis, are the big things. Two, strep throat, very common. Three is pneumonia. So I think of the lungs. Does a child have pneumonia? They can have some abdominal pain, some vomiting, some fever. Also, I think of myocarditis. Vomiting is not an uncommon presentation of myocarditis in the young child in particular. Older children present more with chest pain. Young child often referred to the abdomen. And then I get into intra-abdominal Emergencies such as we've already discussed appendicitis being the, the main one on the top of the list but i have to at least go mentally through that process before i'm going to be happy that this is probably vomiting viral etiology oh I'm sorry i forgot urinary tract infection being the other one that, the big one that i have to think of as well but those are really to me the thought process that leads you through your history as dr jarvis was going through of uh, the key cardinal features that you have to be looking for to
0: rule in but more to rule the others out Just as a little digression, you had mentioned vomiting as an isolated symptom can be something intracranial. I just want to throw in a very sad, true story. A friend of mine presented to their family doctor with vomiting. They couldn't come up with a diagnosis. They sent him to a gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist said, there's nothing gastroenterologically wrong with you. Sent him back to the family doctor. The family doctor essentially said that he felt that it was a psychological problem, uh, gave him some medication to help with his symptoms. And he ended up at Sunnybrook Hospital a few months later, ataxic, and he was dead three months later with a brain tumor. So that really drives home the point that isolated vomiting, especially, I mean, right now we're talking about acute vomiting, but isolated vomiting that persists for more than a week or two, you really need to think of intracranial pathology and do a good neurologic exam. Dr. Friedman, once we're comfortable with the diagnosis of gastro in a child, of course, our primary concern is whether they're dehydrated or not. And it seems that we often simply eyeball the patient in coming up with the answer to this. Can you tell us what the most predictive physical exam findings for dehydration in kids are and how can we best determine the degree of dehydration in a rapid, easy way?
2: So just keep in mind the principle is that the etiology, regardless of what it is that's causing the vomiting or diarrhea, ultimately results in fluid loss and we know that while parental reports concerning dehydration are highly sensitive for example almost never will a parent say their child is urinating normally and they will be significantly dehydrated so they're highly sensitive but not specific so the vast majority of parents will say their child is urinating less or it's darker however that doesn't necessarily imply that there is dehydration present Um, so for the majority of the children the physical examination remains crucial and that really begins by assessing your child's overall appearance Are they awake? Are they alert? Are they running around the room? Or are they clingy, fussy, crying? Or are they lethargic? So they can fall into any of those three categories. The problem is, is when we just eyeball them and use our gestalt, we're often inaccurate. Um, We tend, and there's good evidence from studies, that we overestimate degree of dehydration. We don't usually underestimate, It doesn't mean never, but generally we overestimate it, and actually that results in excessively aggressive interventional therapy, particularly in North America, where our use of intravenous rehydration is excessive. If you look at guidelines, they really reserve IV rehydration for severe dehydration, not for mild to moderate. And really my recommendation for dehydration when it comes to assessing the mild to moderate group is just accept our limitations. I don't try to differentiate mild from moderate and the studies show we cannot. So I tend to group them as some dehydrated, somewhat dehydrated. There's severely dehydrated and then there's the child who's running around the room that I was describing earlier who's none are minimally dehydrated. Now really that's how we tailor our therapy when we get into specific findings there's really only three clinical signs that have been found to be significantly associated with five percent dehydration which would really be the some dehydrated category these would be prolonged capillary refill time abnormal skin turgor and abnormal respiratory rate so tachypnea the more acidotic you get the faster you breathe
0: so just a quick review here the three most important physical exam findings to determine whether a child is severely dehydrated or not are an abnormal cap refill, abnormal skin turgor, and tachypnea.
2: All the other commonly evaluated signs have really insignificant positive likelihood ratios. So really, they don't help us one way or the other, especially when they're present, they really don't make it much more likely that your child is dehydrated. But that's why we tend to overestimate it because we see these signs, we assume they must imply they're dehydrated when in reality, they may only be none or minimally dehydrated. These are signs like just moist mucous membranes, absence of sunken eyes, decreased tears. They're really not highly specific for dehydration. So to improve diagnostic test properties, several authors have designed clinical scores. We talked about clinical scores a bit earlier. Once again, generally helpful, particularly in the eyes of someone who does not routinely see children every day. There's two main scores that have been developed, one by Gorlick in 1997 where he evaluated about 186 children he found that four signs so capillary refill, absent tears, dry mucous membranes and unwell general appearance uh, predicted dehydration. The presence of two of these four signs so two of only the four that I mentioned predicted 5% dehydration with almost 80% sensitivity and 87% specificity so really less overestimating degree dehydration but once again, not perfect because he's still missing about 20% of children. Similar results were found in another prospective study of 137 children by Friedman at SickKids as well, actually. And the final scale there had four variables. Three of them overlapped with Gorlick's score. So very interesting in that general appearance, eyes, mucous membranes, and tears were involved in the final score. So as you can see, three of the four overlap, and they're in the final score scale. And this this. By Friedman has actually been subsequently validated in three subsequent studies to correlate with IV insertion and length of stay.
0: And here's Dr. Friedman's review.
2: Your general assessment very important. Think about categories: non-minimal dehydration, some dehydration, severe dehydration. Severe dehydration is shock. So those are no longer in your general oral rehydration therapy algorithm. It's shock of similar to shock of any cause. Some dehydration have some of the signs of dehydration. These two scales that I've mentioned can help you assess that. So you're looking at four primary features, general appearance, mucous membranes, tears, eyes, and the Gorlick score includes capillary film. If you can look at those five and focus on those five, and if they are all absent, then you probably have none to minimal dehydration. And although we're not talking about treatment now, but they fall into the non-minimal dehydration treatment algorithm.
0: Dr. Friedman just outlined for us nicely how to assess the degree of dehydration in a child. One of the things we need to think about as a next step, besides oral rehydration therapy, for example, is whether or not to do blood tests. What are the indications for blood tests? Can you review for us what the indications might be and why?
1: Great question. It presses on everyone's mind, particularly with younger kids. In Canada, I would say that 95% of children with gastroenteritis do not need any tests whatsoever because the vast majority have minimal or some which you interpret as mild dehydration. So it's your history. Is the urine output excessive? Is the child really drinking a lot? Could that be diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperglycemia presenting? That's always at the back of our minds. Has this child had previous urinary tract infections? I look at the urine again. I may even send a culture. Because some children with urinary tract infections present with vomiting. Vomiting is very common. Some may have diarrhea. Am I in a Walkerton-type outbreak where uh, we're looking for complications of E. coli gastro? Then I might do blood tests on a child who, in my opinion, is mildly dehydrated. I might want a baseline platelet count. Look for signs of hemolysis. But I want to emphasize most children in Canada need nothing done. The big red flag is any level of lethargy. And please listen to the parents. If the child's activity level is 40% or less than their usual activities, do a bedside glucose and make sure you don't miss hypoglycemia. In various viral gastroenteritis outbreaks, we see low blood glucose levels. And there are many small children who, if they're starved, they haven't taken adequate calories for over 24 hours, will definitely drop their blood glucose. So, in summary, 95%, nothing, past history, may have to do something. Specific outbreaks, like E. coli, maybe you need something. But the check is your friend if the child is lethargic. Now, if you're dealing with... A significant dehydration and you're going to start an intravenous because the child's in shock or impending shock or they have absolutely failed oral rehydration and the diarrhea and vomiting are ongoing so you know you're going to end up in trouble then I do recommend that in addition to the glucose if you haven't checked it already you need to check a serum bicarbonate, electrolytes, and a BUN. That would be my panel, and I'd be interested to see what if Dr. Friedman agrees with that.
2: Yeah, I would concur with Dr. Jarvis completely, essentially. Routine electrolytes are not helpful in assessing degree of dehydration. Your primary modality will be your clinical assessment of dehydration. If they fall into the category of some dehydration, then oral rehydration therapy is going to be your mainstay of therapy, and those children do not need electrolytes performed. If, for whatever reason, they fail oral rehydration therapy, which still often happens in North America, and a decision is made to administer IV fluids, which is probably overdone in North America, but let's just take that at face value, then the guidelines would recommend doing a baseline set of electrolytes not so much even to assess degree of dehydration but one of the key elements is sodium because you're going to be putting them on a sodium containing solution and we occasionally will see children have significant derangements in their baseline sodium so I'll give you an example a child um, who appeared on the more severe side of the some dehydration category um, and actually was enrolled in in an IV rehydration study that I was doing because she had failed oral rehydration and her Gore was actually 7 out of 8 points on the the Friedman scale, not related to me, Friedman scale that we were discussing earlier, she, to the surprise of the whole clinical team, had a sodium of 116. And so in her case, it's very relevant that everyone knew what her baseline sodium was because you wouldn't want to significantly and too rapidly change her sodium that had developed over the last three or four days. And so doing a set of baseline electrolytes, as Dr. Jarvis pointed out, B-U-N creatinine Bicarbonate, you know, people look at that somewhat to to assess degree of dehydration. Its accuracy, though, is very debatable. But nonetheless, people do use those markers, and really, the sodium is a key element in the setting of IV rehydration.
0: The vast majority of cases of gastro we see are viral. Doctor Friedman, what would make you question the possibility of a bacterial gastro as opposed to viral? in other words when would you order stool cultures
2: so stool cultures are not something that we routinely perform actually i was surprised in your scenario when the child had one episode of vomiting that he had a stool culture done having said that you know we actually uh, do see a fair number a, of positive stool cultures actually in a recent audit 20 percent of all stool cultures that we sent were positive for a bacterial organism at sick kids half of those being salmonella so true bacterial pathogens if you kind of use your history, that primarily will guide the need for stool culture. So there are several well-known high-risk features, which generally play out through most age groups, which would include uh, travel history to endemic countries, uh, more than 10 stools in the last 24 hours. I use greater than 5 days duration of diarrhea that's not starting to resolve at that point as being a useful marker, as well as blood or mucousy stools, and then uh, abdominal pain, so really more the dysentery-like picture. So. Children who present like that do warrant the performance of a stool culture.
0: How about fever? Is fever in that list at all? Fever would also
2: prompt that, although fever is not very discriminatory early on in the illness. So the vast majority of children who present with viral gastroenteritis have fever. So I don't use fever as an isolated symptom to perform stool cultures. Fever in the context of the child with persistent diarrhea going on four or five days, not going away then I use that as something to to make me more concerned as well. And part of the importance also in children who are having prolonged symptoms is that if we're starting to get into the picture of inflammatory bowel disease, normal stool cultures is obviously a requirement and an element in, in facilitating their workup and moving forward as well.
0: I see. So we've got our patient with gastroenteritis. We've decided whether or not to do blood work. We all know that oral rehydration is favored for the child who does not have severe dehydration. Compared with IV rehydration, oral rehydration therapy is associated with a reduced risk of complications like electrolyte imbalances, cerebral edema, and and phlebitis, as examples. So oral rehydration therapy is recommended as a treatment of choice for children with acute gastroenteritis who have some dehydration. Dr. Friedman, in the old days, antiemetics were not recommended for use in pediatric patients, largely because of studies involving phenothiazines, which were shown to be associated with nasty things like acute dystonic reactions and apnea. That was until Ondansetron came along, a trade name Zofran in Canada. Ondansetron has revolutionized the management of gastroenteritis in kids largely as a result of one of the articles that you did in 2006 in the New England Journal. And a recent Cochrane review has suggested that ondansetron effectively stops vomiting and reduces the number of patients needed for IV rehydration and immediate hospitalization. But the Cochrane review also points out that there's no difference between the hospitalization rates at 72 hours after discharge from the ED. This makes me wonder whether we're temporarily suppressing vomiting just enough to get them out of the emergency department, only to have them bounce back after the medications have worn off. In other words, my question to you is, does ondansetron mask serious disease?
2: So um, first, let me actually just uh, state that I did previously receive research support funding from GlaxoSmithKline, the manufacturer of ondansetron, although that's been seven years since any funding was received. So, onto the question though of does it mask serious disease? There really is no evidence that it masks serious disease. The most important consideration in using it is making your initial assessment. And we've been talking about assessing and making a determination. If you think the child and your working diagnosis has gastroenteritis and your plan is to not do any diagnostic investigations, tests, and perform oral rehydration therapy, then the administration of an antiemetic, on Dastron in this case, would be appropriate. If you're not so sure, you're concerned, you're doing a workup for things like appendicitis, then it would be completely, I wouldn't say inappropriate to give it, but don't use it as part of your diagnostic tool. Um, we shouldn't be giving a gastroenterologist saying, oh, he stopped vomiting, it must not be a bowel obstruction or it must not be appendicitis. One has nothing to do with the other. So really, you need to use it in your thought process, in your line of in a child with gastroenteritis. With respect to the direct question of it doesn't mask serious illness, There's a nice study out of um, Atlanta where they at three emergency departments. They looked at a huge cohort of children, 34,000 children who got diagnosed with gastroenteritis. I believe it was 58% were given ondansetron, and they looked at the risk of serious disease in children administered ondansetron versus those who were not. And if anything, found a slightly lower risk in those administered ondansetron. What that probably reflects is good physician judgment, meaning they probably gave it to children who they're pretty confident with their diagnosis. May not have given it to children who were they were less confident. If I may address your point about return visits within 72 hours as a marker of success, I don't think that that's the outcome you want to be looking at. Number one, why do we give an antipyretic to a child with fever? Not because we're trying to make his illness go away, not because we're trying to mask an illness. But we're trying to make the child feel better. So number one, that's what we're there for is to make the child feel better. So if we eliminate nausea, eliminate vomiting, we've achieved something. The evidence is from the meta-analyses is that five children need to be treated to prevent one child from vomiting. If we then look at the subsequent things that we inflict on children sometimes is that they receive an IV. So a very painful procedure, traumatic to the child, traumatic to the parent, challenging sometimes to our nurses or physicians if you're the ones inserting them. The evidence there also Five children need to be treated to prevent one child from needing an intravenous. So very good numbers needed to treat with narrow confidence intervals. What happens when they go home, the numbers aren't higher. The revisit rate being the same, not higher at 72 hours, to me, does indicate that, yes, the illness does resume after they go home. But we've actually done something beneficial in the emergency department. And then once they go home, the illness resumes, but it doesn't resume worse They're just as likely to come back as if we didn't give them ondansetron. So so you do have a significant benefit over a, for example, 12-hour window where they're initially in the emergency department.
0: So that brings up the question, do you give a prescription of ondansetron for patients to take home so that they don't need to come back?
2: Excellent question. And the answer for me is actually quite straightforward, and it's a no. I administer a single dose of Mm -hmm. ondansetron. I do not give a prescription to take home. And the reason for that is quite straightforward. Number one, the single best study that's looked at multiple doses of endastron, published in 2002 in Annals of Emergency Medicine by Ramsouk, and they gave six doses of endastron versus six doses of the placebo. They had the same benefits that everyone else has found in the emergency departments. So reduction in vomiting, reduction in IV insertion. What happened after the children went home? They had three times as much diarrhea,
0: That's a specific side effect of the ondansetron, diarrhea?
2: That is a side effect that has been borne out in four different gastroenteritis clinical trials where there is an increase. However, with a single dose, the increase is very mild and minor. It's often one more episode of diarrhea, so clinically insignificant. With repetitive dosing, not only do you have the increase in diarrhea, but the interesting part is you don't have any reduction in vomiting beyond the benefits seen in the emergency department. So you don't actually get further reduction in vomiting, and you have some side effect, cost, and then there's always other potential side effects that one can have. And so if we're not achieving any benefit, then there really is no indication to be doing that. And the other piece in that respect is, I prefer the children, if they have ongoing symptoms, as Dr. Jarvis has said many times today, be reevaluated, reassessed by their family physician, pediatrician, or emergency department if they have ongoing symptoms. Because maybe we were wrong. So if you look at that earlier study of did we miss a serious diagnosis? Uh, a not insignificant number of children in both arms had some serious diagnoses
0: that were missed at the index visit. I love the passion with which you talk about on Dancitron. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it on Dance-O-Tron. I've been through the trenches with it. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about it on, on Dancitron a bit more. Before we do, I just want to give our listeners a quick simplified version of how to give Pedialyte or oral rehydration sure. therapy. Five milliliters every five minutes for kids up to six months of age, 10 milliliters every five minutes for toddlers, so up to about three years old, and 15 milliliters every five minutes for kids older than three years old. You should aim for about one ounce per kilogram per hour for three or four hours, and remember to continue breastfeeding during this time.
1: I agree with what you have said, but... I really beg the parents to go slowly in the first hour. The first hour is key. And if you set up a negative vibe with the young child, where they are literally going to spit it out rather than truly vomit, you want to go slowly. Get them playing, get them distracted, right? And just offer a little and gradually, after 30 minutes, you build it up. But definitely by the end of the first hour, I want to see that rate going in. And remember, if they have ongoing diarrhea, you've got to add another 10 cc's per kilo per stool in the next hour.
0: Great. Okay, so getting back to the uh, ondansetron, the FDA recently put out a warning about ondansetron that it should be avoided in patients with congenital prolonged QT syndrome. <laughs> as it can precipitate torsade, torsade de point, as we say in Canada. For the American listeners, they say torsade de point. point, right? And also that it should be contraindicated in patients with hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and, and congestive heart failure. So they recommend ECG monitoring for patients who may be predisposed to these conditions. What are your thoughts on this?
2: So a good question and a hot topic. There have been reports of arrhythmias in individuals given andansetron who have underlying prolonged QTC syndrome for whatever reason or have significant electrolyte abnormalities. But if you look actually at the case reports, and I'm actually conducting a systematic review right now, but but to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a case report of an arrhythmia induced in a child or an adult given an oral dose of andansetron. The literature seems to be isolated to adults and the odd child case report, given doses intraoperatively um, or in treatment for uh, chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting, where they've given very large bolus doses through the IV. So having said that, I don't view the oral dose of endanctron as a high-risk medication uh, in children in general. Now, the other piece I think about is, do I give it to children with known congenital heart disease who may have conduction abnormalities or children with known prolonged QTC, QTC intervals? No. And I won't do prolonged EKG monitoring either because I don't give it to them. I just don't believe that the benefit is risk worth the risk. And so in that group of patients, I do not administer it. I don't worry about it in terms of looking for electrolyte abnormalities. We don't routinely, as we discussed earlier, see significant hypokalemia in children who are somewhat dehydrated, who I'd be giving it to. So at the end of the day, I don't believe that should change general practice. If people weren't aware of the association with prolongation of the QTC, then yes, I think people should not be giving it to kids who are known to be at risk for having arrhythmias or children with known risk for, such as Barter syndrome, for electrolyte abnormalities. That would predispose them to to torsades.
0: Sure, I guess the in the patient in the adult patient population, the alcoholic who's been drinking and drinking and drinking, a lot of them will have hypokalemia, a lot of them will have hypomagnesemia, and a lot of them are vomiting. And so, in those patients, you'd probably want to avoid IV on dancitron.
2: That sounds very reasonable. I'm glad I work at a child's hospital.
0: St. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike's isn't very far away. <laughs> Dr. Jarvis, if a child is still vomiting after a good dose of oral ondansetron, what is your next move? Do you use Gravol, the way in Canada we used to do, which is dimenhydrinate, an NG tube, which is very popular in Australia, or intravenous, which is more popular in North America?
1: This is an extremely timely question. And my colleague will fill you in afterwards on some research he's doing right now about it. My answer is in two parts. If there is vomiting after the ondansetron, I personally do not usually repeat the dose, except they're very special circumstances. I already cautioned when you were giving the rates of rehydration that it's so important to go slowly at the beginning. Many parents with a hungry youngster who is grabbing at the cup or bottle, and we see this more, at least it's my experience to see it more in bottle fed 14 month olds, they will not limit themselves to that one little sip, 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 five ml dose and most of the time when we hear there's been vomiting we find out the kids really taking two ounces that is 60 mls and the mother is saying but he usually takes eight or ten he took very little to get that slow 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 mantra across isn't that easy so what I do depends on what's the situation if this child had too much, well, I'm going to wait. If the child vomited within 10 minutes of the undansetron, I'll wait a half an hour, repeat the dose. Wait another half an hour and then have a nurse or volunteer supervised reintroduction at the correct rate for the child. Now, we get rid of a lot of questions just with that maneuver going slowly. Suppose they fail. This family has done everything according to the book and the kid's still vomiting. Depends where I'm at. Am I in Chile? Am I in the West Indies? Am I in Pakistan? Where we have big feeding centers and we have uh, workers in the field who are not really physicians or nurses but have been superbly, superbly trained at rehydration. Then nasogastric is the way to go. And they treat children in shock successfully this way. In North America, there is an aversion to nasogastric tubes. And now let me disclose, I've had a nasogastric tube. It isn't pleasant. I couldn't agree more. However, properly placed by a professional, well-trained, and slow infusion of your oral rehydration fluid, saves the child all the complications of intravenous therapy, which are much more extensive and more life-threatening. It's been our habit so far in North America to go straight to the intravenous route. So we have multiple sticks, we have cellulitis, infusions that go into the subcutaneous tissue, electrolyte problems, but that's what we have to face. And that's why we're really pushing oral rehydration to avoid those iatrogenic complaints. Now, I said, my colleagues doing research on this, maybe in another 10 years we'll convince North Americans to change their habits of going straight from oral to intravenous. I'm not holding my breath, really. Doctor
2: And I probably, <laughs> if you hold your breath, you uh, might not be there tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, just a couple quick uh, comments or tricks of the trade that uh, I, I tend to think about as well. Number one, when I give on diensitron, I tell them not to give the child anything to drink for 15 minutes afterwards. So because actually it's not absorbed, even if you give the dissolving tablet, it's actually not absorbed through the oral buccal mucosa, it's actually too large a molecule, it's swallowed absorbed from the stomach. So I make sure they're NPO for 15 minutes so enough of it can be absorbed, have some effect before they start again. If they do vomit in that 15 minute window, I do repeat a dose. Because that probably would imply that enough, not enough has been absorbed. And that's what I've done in clinical trials and in practice. The other thing, the bottle-fed child that you commented on, the trick that I use with them is I take the bottle away from the parents. And I actually only let them put in half an ounce into the bottle. And so the child will drink that half ounce, actually. And then they'll cry and be very upset when that half ounce is gone. But I'm very happy. I tell the parents this is a good thing. And then I say, put it down for five minutes another half ounce in or when we're ready to progress you put an ounce in but I limit what goes into the bottle because what I've learned is parents will not take the bottle away from the child once they start drinking so if they're in the mood they want to drink they take two three four ounces and you walk back in the room they might be doing really well right now five minutes later it's all over the floor so really controlling that piece is really important for the bottle fed child I would agree as far as nasogastric rehydration Culture plays a very large role in what is involved in medical care. And so I don't see us changing to nasogastric rehydration right away. Having said that, while you can very effectively rehydrate the vast majority of children through a nasogastric tube, the failure rate in most studies is somewhat higher than IV, where the fluid goes directly into the vasculature. But having said that, probably nasogastric rehydration is as successful to, as about 90, 90% of children requiring that such a form of rehydration
0: if you are considering nasogastric rehydration one trick of the trade that has been shown to be effective in adults is to use four or ten percent lidocaine and put it in a nebulizer and nebulize it five minutes before you put the nasogastric tube in and that significantly decreases the pain associated with nasogastric tube which has been rated as more painful than IV insertion and even more painful than LP in adults. In kids, however, there is an Australian study that recently came out that showed that using this nebulized lidocaine to prevent pain of nasogastric insertion is not effective. We've talked a little bit about when you should suspect bacterial gastroenteritis, and we've talked a little bit about when to suspect an alternate diagnosis what about the particular situation where you you might be worried about the possibility of hemolytic uremic syndrome in a child who presents with diarrhea first of all when would you suspect that it might be hemolytic uremic syndrome in a patient who presents just looking like a regular gastroenteritis and how would this change your workup and management
2: well, Dr. Jarvis actually has already mentioned a couple important things is knowing your local epidemiology. So if there's an outbreak of hemolytic uremic syndrome, you have to be much more alert to the possibility. How do you detect hemolytic uremic syndrome in a child who looks like they have routine gastroenteritis? Well, you can't really. So unless they have features that are concerning for it, the, the early features might be signs of just a bacterial enteritis. So that's the First thing, sometimes you think, we, we've discussed the features of bacterial gastroenteritis, you send a school culture, you get it, it comes back positive for E. coli 0157, and then obviously you have to be quite alert to it, and they need blood test. However, having said that, you know, cases can be very, very subtle. And so, for example, there was a child I took care of about five, six months ago now, who had uh, just returned from camp, and the mother could not give a lot of history because he was at a sleepaway camp. But he had had some bloody stools for a couple of days, some abdominal pain, some cramping, some low-grade fevers. And I reviewed the case with the resident, and the sense was probably just regular gastroenteritis, maybe bacterial. We weren't aware of an outbreak at the time, and so we were thinking of sending stool cultures. And when I went in the room, just he looked a little bit more unwell, but but he actually had no signs of Frank hemolytic uremic syndrome. So anemia. So he wasn't pale. He wasn't tachycardic. He had no petechiae. And on history, mom, and he was a, about a 10-year-old, said he was urinating. It was only when I went into more history and said, well, what, what color is your urine? And he came out and said, it's really dark colored. And I was thinking, okay, it's probably just gastroenteritis and maybe he's a little bit dehydrated, dark colored. Let's get a urinalysis. So, that was almost, that was just before I was about to send him home. Actually, my thought was send him home, and then I changed my mind. I said, "Okay, your analysis, your analysis comes back with large leukocytes, large red blood cells," and it was at that point that all of a sudden my red flag went way up in the air, and um, I walked out of the room and said, "He's got hemolytic uremic syndrome," and we did blood work, and lo and behold, the shocking thing to me is that his platelets were 12, his BUN and creatinine had tripled from baseline of what they should be for a child that age, and he had no. I went back to the room, no signs of edema no petechiae heart rate was within acceptable range for the child so i think we just have to really be on the lookout for it you know one of the early signs is actually just tea colored urine is kind of the moral of that story and the other moral is to think about in kids where you're thinking of bacterial gastro where you, know, you never know what it is is a urinalysis can be a very helpful test as we've said several times today where you know there's no other reason why he should have such large blood in his urine So that really was what made the diagnosis for me right off the bat and totally changed the trajectory of this child who ended up on dialysis uh, within 24 hours.
0: Okay, so just to review for our listeners, hemolytic uremic syndrome has a triad of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and renal insufficiency. And uh, some of the early clinical clues, one of them is a tea-colored urine. Sometimes they'll be very lethargic. They might look pale because of the anemia. They may have edema, as you mentioned, especially periorbital edema and first waking. They usually do not have a fever and they usually do have bloody stool and abdominal pain.
1: May I add one other caution? And I did spend a week up in Walkerton helping out when the outbreak occurred there.
0: Just for our international listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, Walkerton is a town in Ontario, north of Toronto, where there was a huge E. coli outbreak that hit the news big time a few years back.
1: Yes, most of the community was affected. There were many deaths and uh, many people have gone on to chronic renal failure. It was a very bad outbreak. But one of the things I learned actually working there in the midst of the outbreak, which I'd read about but not truly appreciated, is that many people present with the hemolytic part after the diarrhea gets better. So families would come in during the diarrhea, of course, in a panic. We would do the blood work and assure them that it was normal. And I repeat, we don't usually do blood work in gastroenteritis, but this was a special situation. We knew the town's water had been contaminated, the water supply. And then the parents are just beginning to breathe a sigh of relief that, good, the stools are normalizing, there's no more blood. When they would say, hmm, he's not really picking up on the energy she looks a little pale and they'd come in with these remarkable findings and again in pediatrics you get fooled all the time the discharge instructions are everything Dr. Friedman's case the child looked well even when he knew and was examining the child with that educated eye yet 24 hours later the child's on dialysis and this is the key that children can change quickly.
0: So this brings up the complicated issue of when, if ever, to start empiric antibiotics for gastroenteritis. We've just finished scaring our listeners about (laughs) hemolytic (laughs) urimic syndrome. I don't want them to be all going out and giving antibiotics to every kid who looks sick with gastro. What kind of decision-making tools can you give us to help us decide whether... A patient with gastroenteritis would need an antibiotic
1: the short answer is almost never that's it almost I, I, never I, I, I would
2: agree with that and qualify unless you think they have typhoid fever so so we'll occasionally see as people if they appear septic highly febrile unwell but in the bloody stool scenario frequent stools well-appearing child almost never
0: Dr. Friedman is now going to comment on whether we should be thinking about on-spec antibiotics for patients who we suspect have hemolytic uremic syndrome.
2: So the first question is, is does everyone with E. coli O157 develop hemolytic uremic syndrome? And the answer is no. Empiric treatment of O157 is not warranted because studies generally and meta-analyses have shown that perhaps this increases the risk of actually developing hemolytic uremic syndrome.
0: Okay, so we've we've talked about not giving antibacterials. A lot of us work in emergency departments where we feel the results, for example, the stool culture results. Which bugs do you consider giving antibiotics for? So even
2: when positive, rarely do any of them merit treatment unless the child is persistently symptomatic. So actually, what I do when I do my positive culture result follow-ups is... If I have stool ones, I actually, I look at the AAP Redbook. It's available generally to most physicians through, through online resources. And actually, there's very clear guidelines because you need to identify for each bug, there are specific high-risk populations. So for example, Salmonella, sickle cell disease is a very high-risk population, young age, immunocompromised. So that there's a lot of factors that go into to be taken into account. In general, if when you do your phone call, the child is no longer symptomatic, And they are not in one of the high-risk criteria, regardless of the organism we do not treat.
1: There are certain outbreaks of C. difficile, and one tends to treat those. But I must emphasize that the carriage rate after hospitalization is high. And there are studies now showing if one child in a daycare has been hospitalized, then there's colonization of the other children in the daycare. So you have to look at the whole picture. Is this child having bloody diarrhea, abdominal cramps, they are severely affected, or it's a reason not to do it for regular diarrhea because if the child is not shocky, don't culture the stools. You you don't know what to do with the result. We think a lot of The problems with C. difficile is overuse of antibiotics and changing the gut flora. So I I would just mention that specifically, that there are carriage rates that have nothing to do with the symptoms the child is having.
0: I see. So when it comes to C. diff, you know, in the adult population, we see quite a few sick patients with uh, C. difficile enteritis. Can you just paint us a picture of the state of C. difficile enteritis in the pediatric population? Well, there's
1: some very high-risk groups. Neonates, graduates of neonatal intensive care units. Uh, Again, people with inflammatory bowel disease, people on high-dose steroids, chemotherapy, people who've had a ruptured appendicitis and been very ill. There are categories of people who, if we see it, then we will treat with appropriate antibiotics. But in the regular run-of-the-mill diarrhea, if a culture has been done, the child looks well, there is no excessive abdominal pain, there's no blood in the stool, then don't treat it.
0: Let's move on in our gastroenteritis discussion here to when you're going to send the patient home. Dr. Jarvis, can you give us A rundown of your typical discharge instructions you'd give to the parents for kids with gastroenteritis.
1: Absolutely. So important. The first thing is just let me check in with them what foods the child will eat when they're feeling ill. You notice I didn't say what their normal diet is. I said what foods will this child usually eat when they're feeling ill? And then I try to tailor my dietary advice to what the child will actually take in. I emphasize to the parents that early introduction of solids is the way to go. And I usually, in children who've just had oral rehydration or haven't even needed oral rehydration, I very, very rarely leave them on plain fluids, just clear fluids for more than 12 hours, really. I emphasize that when you start solids, the diarrhea may increase temporarily because the gut is irritable. So small, frequent feeds that is limited in complex sugars, such as in fruit juice, is the way to go. Most kids like pasta. Many kids live on rice. So there are many complex carbohydrates you can use with the early introduction of some chicken breast, right? Steam fish, something that's high protein. Get the building blocks in there to repair the gut wall. I emphasize that the diarrhea may increase. And if they do, then I recommend... That they, I give them the calculation for the child's weight that they would give pediolite in addition to the solid food to make up the fluid loss in the stool. And then I just say, no, blood in the stool, your child is too sleepy, your kid has pain, sudden high fever, anything you think is just strange for your child. Please come back.
0: So you mentioned that uh, they may have slightly more diarrhea if they're started with solids. And if they're only taking fluids, they're still going to continue to have diarrhea. Yes. Um, Dr. Friedman, do you recommend anti-diarrheal medications in kids like uh, loperamide, bismuth, or probiotics? So
2: unfortunately, there's no evidence that any of these potential anti-diarrheal treatments are really effective. In particular, I think loperamide is the one that I I just have to say something about because it's uh, not infrequently used by some of our adult colleagues, I believe. And in children, actually, in the really young children, it's in fact contraindicated because its use has been associated with death. Similarly, bismuth has salicylate in it. So we don't recommend that in children, once again, given given the limited evidence of efficacy. The other group to consider is probiotics, and that's a very hot topic. There are numerous studies, actually 65 studies, on probiotic use in children. There have been two Cochrane reviews on the topic, and there is some promising evidence there, though. Um, Number one, extremely safe. So unlike loperamide, unlike bismuth, there is a great safety profile for probiotic use in children, regardless of the indication. The potential side effects are who wouldn't you want to use it in, Primarily, children with central lines, there are outbreaks uh, of line infections. Children with congenital heart disease, there are reports of endocarditis. Otherwise, aside from short being the other population I can think of off the top of my head, a very excellent safety profile. The question is, what's the real benefit? In hospitalized children in developing countries, there's probably some evidence that their duration of diarrhea is one day shorter. The real question is, and there was a nice uh, review written of the latest Cochrane Review in Annals, just uh, actually September, I believe, looking at the Cochrane Review, and and they question appropriately, how do we translate this to our patients, number one uh, in North America, with different organisms? And they're outpatients, and they're less severe disease. And the studies seem to show, in general, children with less severe disease have a smaller benefit, because as we've been discussing, in general, gastroenteritis predominantly viral, is predominantly self-limited in a several-day interval. So how much benefit will you get by routinely using that in North America is really unclear still.
0: So in terms of medications for kids with gastro, you can consider probiotics. There's not much of a downside because it's relatively safe. And in kids with severe gastroenteritis, it may shorten the period of illness by about one day. okay so that's all we're going to talk about gastroenteritis let's go on to our third case the third case is that of a two-year-old boy who presents at 9 p.m with several hours of crying and looking bloated there's no history of vomiting fever or urinary symptoms and the last bowel movement was that was two days ago was normal the week prior the boy had a mild upper respiratory tract infection that resolved spontaneously he was otherwise healthy with no past medical history, no surgical history, and on no medications. On exam, the vital signs are normal except for a slightly high heart rate and a temp of 38.0. The abdomen is soft, non tender, and bowel sounds are present. An abdominal x ray showed that the patient was FOS, full of stool, and it did not show any obvious signs of obstruction. The boy was diagnosed with constipation and discharged home with a script for lactulose and dietary instructions. The next day, the boy returned to the emergency department with lethargy, looking pale, being tachypneic, and a distended abdomen. The boy was placed on a monitor and an IV was started in the resuscitation room. A 20 cc per kilogram normal saline bolus was given, as well as IV antibiotics to cover for possible sepsis. A portable abdominal x-ray was ordered and blood work was sent. The x-ray showed prominent loops of bowel. A venous blood gas came back showing a metabolic acidosis with a pH of 7.1. A rectal examination was then done, which was positive for fecal occult blood. The patient was stabilized and sent for ultrasound, which showed the typical findings of an intussusception. The surgeon was consulted and they opted not to do an air contrast enema, the usual treatment for intussusception, because of suspected ischemia and possible perforation, and instead took the patient to the OR, where they did in fact find a perforated bowel and intestinal ischemia. The patient had a long post-operative recovery, but ended up doing well. Dr. Jarvis Why is intussusception, the prolapse of one part of the intestine into the lumen of an immediately adjacent distal part, important for ED docs to know about?
1: Oh, it's absolutely essential. Intussusception is the commonest surgical emergency of the abdomen in children from six months to around six years of age. So this is absolutely important not to be missed. Like most things in this younger age group, although the classical triad is that of intermittent crying, bloody stools, and a sausage-shaped mass in the abdomen, a uh, recent study out of Boston, it was published in Pediatrics in February, showed that less than 40% of their children two months to six years of age presented with a classical triad. So as we've been saying over and over again, nothing is straightforward in this younger age group. Um, To miss it means the child's gut. Most children who remain interscepted for 24 hours lose bowel, This leads to a lifetime of morbidity with short gut syndrome and other complications. And there's a definite mortality rate depending on whether they are finally diagnosed before there's a generalized peritonitis. The perforation may be inside the intersusceptum and therefore contained. But once you get a generalized situation with free air, stool contamination, your mortality rate goes up.
0: Okay, you you had mentioned the classic triad. Mine are saying that there's two common presentations for intussusception. One is the child with vomiting and maybe some abdominal pain if they're old enough to uh, show that. And the other is a lethargic patient. Could you describe for us these two types of presentations?
1: Absolutely. I just want to emphasize there's nothing typical, (laughs) nothing typical. The lethargy piece is a very, very interesting piece. And it speaks to the assessment of pain in children in general. Many children in pain just go very quiet and shock-like. They don't scream and shout and pull up their knees. And the infants, particularly those, uh, those younger than six months, which is a, not the commonest type to, to get into susception, uh, I'll just repeat, the commonest age is between six months and six years, and there seems to be a peak between 18 months and 30 months. Somewhere in there, all the studies agree on that. Different countries, same stats. So for those under a year of age, particularly those under six months, the parents may describe that they're having life-threatening events. They just go very pale, very quiet. I've had parents say it's like all the life was sucked out of them. They just do not present with crying or anything else. And unfortunately some of these children are missed until there's frank blood per rectum, at which time you can almost guarantee there's some dead bowel. So for those of us used to looking after infants, if there is no clear explanation for altered level of consciousness, particularly when the mother says it's coming and going, uh, yes, we think seizures, but we do a rectal exam, and we do a heme occult test because the presence of heme occult blood says that's what you got till proven otherwise. And this is just so very, very important. Um, you may have bilious vomiting, but because this is small gut that goes around into large gut, you have to be obstructed for some time before you get bilious vomiting because it's really a lower bowel problem, just the terminal ileum that's going through into the colon. So those are the infants that are concerning. The 40% who have the classic triad, this is a child, a toddler usually, who is playing then all of a sudden starts screaming. Parents will tell you it's like someone was killing her or she was possessed. Or I mean, it's a cry that draws attention to itself. It says, I have pain I've never had before. Some children curl up in the fetal position. Others crouch down, which is a knee-chest position. But you're lucky if you get that. And... My experience is they may vomit because of the pain. Depends on the child's vomit threshold, right? Whether they vomit. And I must say I've never really had a family say the abdomen is bloated. Uh, Most of the time... The parents I've dealt with have said they don't know what's wrong, but this, something is terrible going on. They recognize that the cry is abnormal. And then many kids in that toddler age group, I have felt a mass in the abdomen. Or what you feel more frequently is that the right lower quadrant feels empty. And unless you felt a lot of little tummies and toddlers have big, prominent bellies, you don't pick it up. Again, hemo called positive on the rectal exam. So if I'm thinking in any way it could be interception, as much as kids hate the process and they may screech, it might be traumatic, Parents may refuse because many parents do not like rectal exams done on their children. Um, You have to explain that if there's blood there, this could be a surgical emergency. So I think that that's the way they're presented. I find vomiting is a late sign because it's really a large bowel problem. And it's intermittent. So if it goes in and out quickly, the child doesn't back up enough to vomit So the frank bleeding and vomiting, in my experience, have really been late signs.
0: In this particular case, the child had an upper respiratory tract infection before the present illness. What's the relationship between uh, prior viral illness and the diagnosis of intussusception?
1: Many of our surgeons will tell you there is most of the time a lead point. If you've had a viral infection, you may have enlargement of the lymph glands throughout the body. Um, we all know dealing with children that some children have chronically enlarged nodes everywhere. And having a viral infection, we presume that the pious patches enlarge another lymphoid tissue in the mesentery. And this acts as a lead point. Right? We have also seen Meckel's diverticular. Right. and other mesenteric duct remnants act as a lead point. The, the
0: textbooks talk about the current jelly stool. You talked about the importance of doing a rectal exam and, and looking for fecal occult blood. The so-called current jelly stool, that is loose stool with mucus and blood mixed into it so that it looks like the consistency of jelly. What should we know about this current jelly stool?
2: It's actually, unfortunately, a late finding. So number one, if you get to that point, then you're already too far further along than you would want to be. Um, Maybe the parents came in too late or maybe unfortunately wasn't diagnosed early enough. When you look at uh, reviews of children with interception, only about 10% of children actually have that description. And as I said, it's not one that you want to see because it means it's too far along. About 60% of children with interception will have occult blood positive stool even in the absence of Grossly bloody stool. So, when you do the rectal, it'll just be positive on your hemocult test. And that should really tip you over that you're already in the early stages of some bowel ischemia that you're seeing higher up. And so, that should really prompt further investigation and workup.
0: Okay, Dr. Jarvis, you had mentioned palpating the right lower quadrant and mm-hmm. feeling a lack of bowel contents in the right lower quadrant. What else besides the lack of bowel contents in the right lower quadrant will you be looking for on the physical examination in someone who you suspect has intussusception?
1: In this young age group we are looking at, we are always on the lookout for child maltreatment. I have had children present with bowel perforation from unsuspected child abuse. What else am I looking for? Signs of obstruction. Any distension, if it's there, uh, restricted respiratory movements, right? The diaphragm is not able to descend because that hurts, irritates the peritoneum. So the breathing pattern, that's something I look for. I auscultate to see if I have high-pitched bowel sounds from the small gut that is obstructed.
0: One thing that we didn't talk about was the classic so-called sausage-shaped abdominal mass in the right upper quadrant. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, it's just as it sounds. It is sausage-shaped. And I'm here to tell you I have actually seen it on several kids. And I've seen the sausage and felt the sausage just under the liver. I've seen it in the right upper quadrant, across, just below, the sternum. And I have felt it over below the spleen. Remember, if this goes on long enough, there are cases reported of the intersusceptum presenting at the rectum. So the whole... And that is such a bad sign. Because as you can imagine, the whole mesentery sucked into the colon, your chance of losing a significant amount of small bowel is extremely high. May I make a plug Please, please, please make sure, especially for the boys, that you rule out a hernia. Girls can have hernias too. And you rule out anything to do with a testicular torsion. Because that too can present with intermittent screaming with some vomiting. So I just put that there as another differential one never ever wishes to miss.
0: Yeah, actually, just my last shift, I had a 22-year-old young man. I, I picked up a testicular torsion in a patient who present whose chief complaint all over the chart, and what he told me, his chief complaint was abdominal pain. And this wasn't an adult. I mean, we always hear about it in kids that kids will complain of belly pain and will end up being a, a testicular torsion. But this was actually a, a grown man who had complained of abdominal pain, and even after re- repeated. Questioning, It was abdominal pain was his, his main complaint. So I was just lucky that that didn't throw me
1: off. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you did the full exam. Unfortunately, every year in North America, there are a number of lawsuits over missed testicular torsions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the keynote in any child who presents with crying, unknown reason, you are committed to a full head-to-toe examination And you have to think beyond the obvious.
0: What other diagnoses can antisusception get confused with?
1: Well, always we have to think of a mid gut, volvulus which is even more of an emergency. This is, of course, because of malrotation of the gut in fetal life. Although around 80% present in the first year, there's still 20% that can present in any time throughout their life. And the gut uh, twists could be 190, could be 360 degrees, almost minutes count here. The keynote with a midgut volvulus, you are twisting around the ligament of trites. It's an extremely high obstruction, and bilious vomiting is a giveaway. And I just caution you don't argue with the parents about what's yellow, green, or blue. Right? People see colors differently. If they have the stuff with them, fabulous. If the ambulance is called, Please ask the EMS what color was coming up. But in a child who is either lethargic and in shock and poorly responsive, I've already said this is how some kids present, or the kid who has bilious vomiting and can't get comfortable, they are just in agony, they are crawling all over the bed, think mid volvulus. And that is Absolutely, minutes are bowel death.
2: A couple other quick things that come to my mind as well. I think, particularly if they have the more lethargic presentation is sepsis meningitis particularly if they have associated vomiting as well and the other thing I mean you look it depends on the presentation often it just may be intermittent crying in an otherwise really well-appearing child actually I was going to add earlier that um, abdominal pain is not usually their chief complaint it's crying parents come in because a child is crying and it happens every 30 minutes every hour and then they play in between and are completely themselves and it lasts two minutes and They don't know what's going on. So I worry about a little bit urinary tract infection in such children as to, you know, maybe every time they're urinating, uh, having some dysuria as well are some of the main things that I think about in that age group. But really, it has to do with your presentation. If it's primarily bloody stools, then you're thinking more bacterial gastroenteritis as well. So really, it comes down to what your symptoms are, because it can present with a variety of symptoms across the spectrum.
0: This patient was sent for an abdominal x-ray let's just take a quick moment to talk about abdominal x-rays in general for kids with belly pain what's the value of an abdominal x-ray in kids and specifically in intussusception what would you be looking for
2: may i just interject before you answer that question actually just related to the scenario this child probably should not be sent for an abdominal x-ray given how unwell he is at the clinical presentation he should be fluid resuscitated which we'll talk about later but but an x-ray is if anything should be a portable x-ray for this child coming to the room and not someone you send out of your department for an x-ray
1: the reasons for doing an, X, uh, an abdominal x-ray is to see bowel obstruction that's what you're looking for and you're looking for free air therefore it's better to do if you're doing the portable in a sick child is better to do a shoot through right a lateral shoot-through rather than having them lie on their back because the gas, unless it's massive and you see a big air bubble, free air in the middle of the abdomen, you will miss perforations that way. You're looking for the classical small bowel obstruction look and free air. Those are the two big messages. Free air, you get that resuscitation going two IVs, big volumes, antibiotics, nasogastric tubes, screen for your surgeons. Free air is really, really bad news. Small boil obstruction means that the intersusception is stuck and no air is passing, or you have a volvulus. In either case, time is got and you need surgical assistance. Don't wait till you finish your resuscitation activate your surgical consult as soon as possible. Now having said that, I find that plain x-rays for constipation are a waste of time and I think all the literature agrees you can't get 100% inter-rater reliability, even from experienced radiologists. You see a fair amount of stool on children who are having daily soft stools and have never had any problem, never had incontinence, never plugged the toilet, never have pain. Uh, it's just not there. On the other hand, are children who are constipated, who, uh, well, there's some stool you're not sure, but this child is having overflow incontinence at age six when they should be toilet trained etc so if you're looking for constipation waste of time if you're looking to rule out a bowel obstruction and free air there is value in the bedside plain film
0: specifically with intussusception, i've heard they talk about the target sign and the crescent sign first of all are they very difficult easy to see are they useful do you look for them
1: well, can I just quote the paper I said from Boston, which reviewed their experience? Only 23% of their proven interception cases had the classical sign, crescent sign, you see across the central abdomen, literally a crescent of air that highlights the silhouette of the interseptum which looks like a sausage pulling through the air. So they saw 23% in their proven cases. Now, they did say that 54% of the interception cases had some suggested signs, right? That is some sign of small bowel obstruction that wasn't complete, you know, some dilation, not the awful picture you see with... Of ovulars. No gas in the rectum, no gas in the right lower quadrant. But this is in the hands of a tertiary care center with a world class radiology field team. And I think that 23% seeing definite signs doesn't make the sensitivity or specificity anywhere near acceptable for us to use.
2: The only real rule of abdominal x-rays in such children is to look for free air. I don't use it to look for anything else, and I don't view, use it to as a screening test for interception. There are several studies that have looked at it specifically, and I'll even add to it at that at sick kids, about once or twice a year, I'll get a call in the morning by the radiologist saying, you know, what happened to patient Johnny from last night? Did he go home? And you'll say, yeah, well, they'll say, well, he, what was his diagnosis? Constipation, and that'll usually be the discharge diagnosed and they'll say, well, his X-ray, I don't know, it might look a little suspicious for interception. And, and what it highlights is, is even, even if radiologists have ED physicians are even significantly worse. So, so it's not something that is very useful in our hands whatsoever.
0: Okay. So for intussusception uh, one of the screening tests that is useful is ultrasound. Could you specify for us the role of ultrasound in working up patients who you suspect to have intussusception
2: The vast majority of North American institutes is now the diagnostic test of choice. It goes back somewhat to our conversation regarding appendicitis, when the studies show, once again, sensitivities close to 99% for ultrasound in the diagnosis of intussusception. It is much less painful a procedure than the alternative screening test that is used in some other centers, which would be a barium enema, being the most commonly employed one. When one gets into the debate of what is the better screening test? The only argument in favor of the barium enema is that it's also therapeutic if positive. However, do we really want to be putting all children through enemas when actually all they need is an ultrasound? Keeping in mind that only approximately 25 to 30% of children who undergo an ultrasound for suspected interception are in need of an enema.
0: If you're deciding to do the ultrasound and, and not the barium enema, how do you treat interception?
2: For approximately 80 80- to 85% of children with intussusception, an enema, either air or barium, are successful at reducing the intussusception. actually. there Once again, there is some variation between centers, between whether they choose to do air as their first line or barium. At SickKids, we use air enema. The risks of the air enema are that you can get rapid inflation of air into the abdominal cavity, which can result in a compartment syndrome actually quite rapidly because it's done under high pressure. The risk with barium is that you're now getting contrast material into the abdominal cavity. So both of them are major surgical immediate emergencies that must go to the operating room. Both of them, thankfully, very, very rare. If one uses careful selection of who undergoes the enema, hopefully they can be avoided. So we do know some high-risk features of who should be a candidate to go straight to the operating room as opposed to having an enema. Those would be including really young children, children with symptoms for a very prolonged period of time, children who are acidotic, such as in our example here with a pH of 7.1, who have evidence of ongoing ischemia, children who are having uh, gross blood per stool that is getting worse, and obviously anyone who's hemodynamically unstable should go straight to the operating
1: room. And when you say anyone who's had it for a long time, my experience has been anyone who's had um, symptoms for much over 15 hours has some dead bowel there.
2: And that actually brings in also the other potential benefit of ultrasound over enema as your diagnostic modalities on ultrasound. Sometimes the sonographers will say there's significant bowel edema in certain areas, areas that appear that have already been ischemic. And that will actually lead us away from going to the next step of air anima, and I mind, rather going to the operating room and to such
1: children.
0: time we're only part of the equation. It isn't
1: nearly fast enough
0: for you. It isn't nearly fast enough for you.
1: It's what I-
0: We had touched upon constipation when we talked about not doing abdominal x-rays. Like gastroenteritis, functional constipation is one of those diagnoses that sometimes we jump to prematurely and end up missing more serious diagnoses. This is no surprise considering how common constipation is in kids and that it's the most common cause of abdominal pain in children. While the vast majority of ED cases of constipation are diagnosed as functional constipation, in a small but significant minority of cases, an underlying disease is responsible. As some of these diagnoses can carry high morbidity. Dr. Jarvis, while there's a huge laundry list in the differential diagnosis of constipation, what are some of the more serious causes of constipation that we should be looking out for in the ED, and what are some of their clinical clues that would help us suspect them?
1: Great question. Your audience will be tired of us saying that it's in the history, but it is in the history. The first and foremost is Hirschsprung's disease. And there are children who have short segment Hirschsprung's which do not present until they are having episodes of severe obstipation with overflow, abdominal distension, when they get rectal stimulation on enema, masses come out that uh, clog the toilet. Most of these children do not thrive. They're not growing well. They tend to be cranky. And I've seen them present up to six years of age with toxic megacolon. So they came in like septic shock. I thought they were a perforation until we got uh, the plane shoot-throughs and realized one of them had gas in the bowel wall. The child needed an urgent colostomy. So the first we think about is Hirschsprungs. Then in the younger infants, you think about obstipated bowel. You, could it be a missed cystic fibrosis? Again, is there a family history? Was the child screened? Where were they born? Family history. Did they pass meconium early on? The next big common group we see is when they change diet. They switch from breast to bottle, right? And you don't need to get excited about it. It's a common finding, and you don't want to go overboard, but you do need to advise the parents on the dietary intake. Have they been running a high temperature? Because I already mentioned that typhoid can present with constipation. So I want to know what is the story Is this a recent event that had a clear precipitant or the child is in the midst of another illness I should diagnose? It's much more urgent than the constipation. Or is this a chronic pattern? And do they really fit the Rome 3 criteria? For chronic constipation, you're looking at two of your bowel motions a week. Under two years of age, it's for one month. And over two years of age, it's for Four months, right? It's a long time. Uh, Stools that clog the toilet, overflow, incontinence is the other thing. So the history of intermittent diarrhea, right? Which isn't really diarrhea. All right? They go from diarrhea to no stools to diarrhea. Very suspect. I look at the child. Are they short stature? Are their features coarse? Is this a hypothyroid. We still see hypothyroid children because we have refugees. We have lots of children in the country who weren't born here. Um, Down syndrome or other children who have muscle weakness generally. Um, signs of missed missed seal. right? Do you have occult cord problems? Is the gait funny? Were they slow to walk? Do they have a neuromuscular problem that hasn't been diagnosed. I've seen constipation present as the first sign of muscle weakness. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the child and doing a head to toe. After you've taken the full history and you've looked at the child carefully, celiac disease is one other one that comes up. I always ask is there a family history, particularly in Celtic families. It tends to be more common, but celiac disease presents in any any group of people's and then I go into was the child assaulted right secondary constipation there's no use treating the constipation without treating the psychological effects we are a little jaundiced about this at Sick children's because we get referred the problematic cases and unfortunately we see far too many children who've been abused Then I make up my mind, does this sound like a classical stool withholding, right? The little kid who goes to school doesn't want to use the filthy toilets with the bullies looking over the door or under the door. And they're walking around with legs clenched, right? Although behaviors like this.
0: Dr. Jarvis is now going to talk about the use of medications in kids with constipation.
1: I don't really have a favorite because I have to find out what the family have tried before. If they have tried your favorite cathartic and you start that, you're going nowhere. Sometimes just that psychological piece of saying, you know, some things don't work for everyone. Let's try. I warn them, if it took the child six years to get into this state, I'll promise them that it's going to take two years normal bowel motions. Most of them gasp and don't believe me. But it does take a long time to retrain the bowel. And whatever I do, I mustn't make the situation worse.
0: Great. So let's divide it into those kids in the emergency department who are impacted and you feel the need to get them evacuated. And, And then we can talk about the kids who... Have chronic constipation who don't need immediate treatment in the emergency department and what their options are at home. There is a role I believe to
2: the use of enemas and to clean them out as I believe you said Dr. Hellman uh, in the emergency department. There was an abstract presented at uh, PAS this past spring that essentially showed a much higher failure rate of those children. They were actually randomized to either just get an oral treatment medication, which we'll talk about, uh, PEG-3350, um, or Miralax or Day for the generic names, versus enema followed by the treatment. And those who only had the oral treatment without the enema had a much higher failure rate, pain following discharge, and returned to the emergency department. So... Given that, I mean, what we, you know, it just makes logical sense to a certain degree. If there is a large mass in the rectum without kind of getting some of that out, at least it's much harder to have the oral treatment succeed. So when we're looking at evacuating the rectum, I tend to use an enema. It depends on age is what I choose to use. So children under two years of age, I generally use a saline enema actually. So approximately 20 ml per kilo is what I would use. However, the vast majority of the really young kids under two years do not need an enema. Those are the children where it's more, there's discomfort, but they don't necessarily have a, a grapefruit. But you'll be amazed by some of the children who are three, four, five years of age, who I give a pediatric fleet enema to, and they produce stools. I mean, I like to see it to know actually what the result is, not because I like looking at stool, but, but I like to see actually, because some of the things in your diagnosis are, is this constipation or is this appendicitis? And so seeing what happens uh, is helpful. And some of them actually will have grapefruits. And you're quite amazed, and the parents are quite amazed to see what comes out. And then you realize why they're having so much discomfort. So that'll be in that age group. And then as, as you get about over 20 to 25 kilos, I'll use actually an adult fleet enema on them. And then as far as disposition i do have a favorite i do want to know what they've been on and what dose they've been on one of my most disliked medications is lactulose actually so one of my favorite things is to discontinue that the studies show that it's less effective than peg 3350 at a dose usually starting at 1.5 grams per kilo per day so actually it's a relatively high dose i think compared to what some of the adults use when you actually do the math Um, i do max out and then i titrate the dose up or down Ideally, eventually down, but sometimes you need to go even higher to get them to have the ideal and allow for the retraining that takes several years. But I really aim for one soft stool per day, and I enable parents to feel okay going up on the dose. And then once you get to that point, start coming down gradually, slowly with the goal being to taper off. PEG 3350 is a powder um, that in Canada is available under the name Laxaday in the US, Miralax. In Canada, it's over the counter. And it comes with a measuring cap, essentially, which has a line on it for 17 grams. And then I tell parents based on, I tell them in grams based on the child's weight. And then I kind of round off to capfuls or half capfuls. And what you do is you dissolve it in about eight ounces of a juice. So either an apple juice or an orange juice. And it's pretty much, there's no taste to it. It dissolves. The children take it very voluntarily. There's no fight about it. And they're actually, unlike with the gastroenteritis, they're getting a high carbohydrate fruit juice, which also helps regulate your stool. Sometimes it results in diarrhea if you're drinking too much, but in this case, it actually is a good thing in that respect.
1: The lactulose will work, but all the studies show that the flatulence will blow everyone out of the house, and the cramps, the kids often refuse to take it for long enough over the long period. Ideally, we should be correcting the diet ensuring they're not drinking too much cow's milk which is bad for many points of view ensuring that they are offered and encouraged to drink water and some helpful hints for the younger kids is the mechanics of having a bowel motion having a stool that they can put or a chair or telephone books or something, they can put their legs on so that they actually are not tightening their perineal muscles to prevent themselves falling in the toilet or falling off. It's very important that the child feels secure. Ah!
0: So to wrap things up, here's my review and additional pearls on pediatric abdominal pain. First, what are the high-yield questions you can ask in the history? Does the pain come and go, or are the stools bloody, or has there been a change in mental status? If any of these things are true, think intussusception. Does this neonate have bilious vomiting? Think malrotation with midgut volvulus. Is there scrotal swelling or discoloration? Think torsion. Is the children drinking or urinating more than usual? Think DKA. Has there been a recent history of mono? Think about spleen rupture. Is there a history of immunosuppression, sickle cell disease, or chronic steroid use? Think about a surgical belly with subtle findings. So th- those are some of the high-yield questions you can ask. What about high-yield physical exam maneuvers? First, look for rash. Think of henoch Schonlein purpura, with or without intussusception if the rash is petechial and concentrated on the buttocks and legs. Another important cause of rash with abdominal pain in kids is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Look at the throat. Pharyngitis is a very common cause of abdominal pain in kids, believe it or not. When examining neonates in young infants, flex their knees to their abdomen as this will soften their abdominal muscles. Allow the fearful child to remain seated in the parent's lap during abdominal palpation. Watch their facial expressions instead of asking for verbal affirmations of pain. Another strategy is making the examination a game. A child with a tender abdomen will play until a sensitive area is examined. Tell them that you're going to feel their belly to guess what they ate. Having them participate can promote a better exam. An alternative to rebound testing is to have the child jump up and down. Children with appendicitis typically jump only once, as the painful landing abruptly terminates the game. In the young child, dropping the diaper is an essential maneuver. Simply undressing the child may yield a prompt diagnosis. Feel for an incarcerated inguinal hernia and look for the scrotal discoloration while palpating for an abnormal testicular lie. A grossly bloody stool in the diaper of a lethargic child points to intussusception. Repeat your physical exams. Utilize observation time in the ED to help sort out ambiguous abdomens. So that's the history and the physical. What about simple high yield tests you can do? The urinalysis can be very telling. For example, hematuria with or without proteinuria should make you think of henoch schoenlein purpura again. Sterile pyuria, think appendicitis. Glucose and ketones, think DKA. And of course, if it's packed with pus, you've got your answer of a UTI. And lastly, Don't forget to check for stool for occult blood, even if they're tiny little kids, because in intussusception and advanced volvulus, blood in the stool is a sign of ischemic gut. Don't forget that many of the common causes of abdominal pain in adults can occur in kids, like cholecystitis, pancreatitis, renal colic, incarcerated hernia, but often have more subtle findings. And for this month's quote of the month, we have one from Christopher Morley. The greatest poem ever known... Is one all poets have outgrown. The poetry innate untold of being only four years old. Next month we're going to tell you everything you need to know about atrial fibrillation in the emergency department with Dr. Claire Edzema, Nazanin Meshkat, and Dr. Brian Al. Before I go, I just wanted to remind you that there's still time to sign up for this year's Whistler Emergency Medicine Conference. That is the 25th annual update in emergency medicine, February 19th to 22nd in Whistler, which of course has some of the greatest skiing in the world. It's fabulous. I've been there a few times now. There's going to be some amazing talks by many of the EM cases experts like Anna Jarvis, David Carr, Joel Yaffe, Eric Litovsky, Paul Hannum, Anil Chopra, Shirley Lee, and David McKinnon. I'm going to be there helping out and giving some talks as well. Hopefully you can make it out for some great education and some great skiing. Until next time, take it easy.